Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Our modern English version Bibles often break up the text with headings. The publishers insert these headings to be helpful, but they are not part of the original text. I do, in fact, find these headings very helpful when I want to find a particular story or passage, but they are also sometimes misleading because, by their very nature, they interpret what the passage is about, and the passage, I find, is often far more profound than the heading would lead us to believe, and sometimes I find that the passage is going in a completely different direction than the heading suggests. In the case of the section of Matthew that we will be looking at today, I encountered a heading in the NRSV version on the Bible Gateway site that seems to have been written to reflect the obvious surface meaning of the first part of this section, but inadvertently identifies a deeper theme in the larger section. The NRSV version of the Bible Gateway site provides a heading for the first part of the section that reads, The Necessity of Watchfulness which is a pretty good title, not just for the first part, but for the entire section, because a form of the Greek word for watch or keep awake occurs three times in this section and ties together all of its parts into one theme about watching or keeping awake. Staying awake or keeping watch or being vigilant is part of a larger theme in the Gospel of Matthew of having eyes to see and ears to hear. We've already encountered several times, most fully in chapter 13, Jesus teaching about the necessity of having eyes to see and ears to hear. The parables have been revealing the secrets of God's new society to those with eyes to see and ears to hear. They have also been revealing the brutality of the old society and its oppressive order. The parable of the tyrant king and the unforgiving slave featured a brutal system in which everyone looks out for their own honor, even if that means beating or torturing those beneath them. The parable of the workers in the vineyard exposed the way that landowners exploit day laborers and pit them against each other. The parable of the tenant farmers laid bare the oppressive system of tenant farming. Comprehending the exposés of these parables is to have eyes to see and ears to hear. It's what would be called in today's parlance staying woke. Now, in chapter 24, after warning his disciples about persecutions, wars, and false messiahs, Jesus admonishes them to stay awake, to remain vigilant in understanding what is happening in the wider society that will affect them and perhaps the city or region that they live in. He wants them to understand how everything works and how catastrophe can come in a moment but also that each catastrophe is an opening for the coming of the Son of Man. He wants them to stay woke. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 60 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.
Let's begin with verses 36 to 44 of chapter 24. But about the day and hour no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away, so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in a field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. If you were raised in a North American evangelical context like I was, then this passage sounds a lot like it is talking about the rapture. For the uninitiated, the term rapture refers to an event associated with the second coming of Christ in which people who have attained spiritual salvation, often referred to as believers, will be suddenly and quickly taken up to heaven to be with Christ. Although I don't remember actually hearing a sermon or teaching in church about the rapture, somehow I came to understand it from a very young age as a fundamental fact of our faith. So much so that I would occasionally experience a sudden fear whenever I temporarily could not find family members, such as when I woke up from a nap to find the house empty. I would fear that the rest of my family had been raptured and that I was left behind. When in reality, my parents had just gone to the store and my brothers were out in the neighborhood somewhere. The constant fear I had as a child was that I was not really saved and that I would be left behind in the rapture. I came to find out later that this fear of being left behind is very common among evangelical young people, especially children. The fear is so ubiquitous that evangelical authors Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins were able to exploit it to publish a series of best-selling novels called the Left Behind series. Notice that the title of the series was not When Jesus Comes Back or some other positive framing, but rather a title that zeroed in on the fear that many evangelicals have, probably still as adults, of being left behind. The series of 16 novels began in the 1990s and led to a film series in the 2000s, as well as a video game series. Like my daddy always told me, if you want to get rich, find a common fear that no one has yet exploited and monetize it. No, my father never told me any such thing, but maybe LaHaye's and Jenkins' fathers told them something like that. Anyway, let's get back to the passage. It's not about the rapture. I don't have the time and wherewithal to get into the other New Testament texts that some evangelicals interpret as talking about the rapture, but suffice it to say that this idea of a rapture is not at all biblical, and it was not even an idea in Christianity until the 1800s. So it is a relatively recent idea in modern Christianity. But the passage here in Matthew really does sound 
especially to us who already have the rapture in our heads, like it is talking about a rapture. It starts off saying that the flood during Noah's time came suddenly, like the coming of the Son of Man will come suddenly. Then it gives two scenarios in which there are two people working side by side, and one is taken and the other is left behind. There is the origin of that ominous phrase. Then it talks about the coming of the Son of Man as the coming of a thief in the night, another image that occurs often in the New Testament to speak of Christ's second coming, and which has been seared into the evangelical mind as such. The interpretation of this passage as describing a rapture, then, derives from the suddenness of the event being described, the taking of some people while others are left behind, and because it is about the coming of the Son of Man. So first we need to review what the coming of the Son of Man is. The coming of the Son of Man seems to be, in Matthew, both a future event and something that will occur at the crucifixion of Jesus, as well as every time a member of the movement is martyred. In the previous passage covered in the last episode, Jesus says that the coming of the Son of Man will be like lightning in the sky, but then adds, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather, which is an image of Roman soldiers gathering at the cross. Then Jesus describes the signs that will accompany the coming of the Son of Man, and they are signs that will occur at the crucifixion of Jesus. Later in chapter 26, when on trial before the Sanhedrin, right before he is crucified, Jesus will say, From now on you will see the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. So while the coming of the Son of Man is on one level referring to the future event of the second coming, it is also referring to the crucifixion of Jesus and subsequent martyrs. Or another way of saying this is that the coming of the Son of Man begins at the crucifixion of Jesus. Furthermore, in chapter 24, Jesus has been linking the destruction or crucifixion of Israel, i.e. the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in the year 70, after which thousands of Jews were crucified, to his own crucifixion. Jesus has been making the point that the crucifixion of Israel is redeemed through his own crucifixion. So the crucifixion of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, also participates in or is redeemed by the coming of the Son of Man. This is why the coming of the Son of Man is likened to the catastrophe of the flood. Like the destruction of Israel, it was a cataclysmic event, killing many people and ending the world as it was known. And both catastrophes were sudden, or at least would have seemed sudden. The fall of Jerusalem was a catastrophe stemming from a rebellion that erupted suddenly, or so it would have seemed to the people at the time. Sure, there was always unrest and constant subversive rebel activity. Revolutionary tensions were always present. But people of the time were used to that. They were also used to how it never came to anything. Except in 66, it did. All of these events felt like sudden events, including the crucifixion of Jesus. While Jesus has been talking about his crucifixion for a while, his actual arrest and execution will happen fairly quickly. He is arrested Thursday night, immediately put on trial before the Sanhedrin, which apparently meets through the night to condemn him, 
Then he is taken to Pilate, who has him crucified before noon on Friday. It all happens in much less than 24 hours. And while executions were not always so quick, the sudden arrests of people in this virtual police state would have been a common occurrence and is probably what is meant when Jesus describes two people working side by side, one is taken and the other left. The person who is taken is taken to be imprisoned, tortured, and possibly executed, like Jesus. But for those with eyes to see, all of these executions and all of this destruction participates in the coming of the Son of Man. The crucifixion of Jesus leads to the resurrection. All subsequent executions are transformed into prophetic martyrdoms, and the destruction of Israel is redeemed through a movement for a new society. Through the cross, all that the empire destroys rises from death and participates in the coming of the Son of Man. Or to look at it from the opposite end, as this passage does, the future coming Son of Man redeems all the death and destruction of the empire. But this only happens if we stay awake, with eyes to see and ears to hear. That is the whole point of this section. We must keep our eyes open so that we can see the coming of the Son of Man in all of these things. Let's continue with verses 45 to 51. Who then is the faithful and wise slave whom his master has put in charge of his household to give the other slaves their allowance of food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master will find at work when he arrives. Truly I tell you, he will put that one in charge of all of his possessions. But if that wicked slave says to himself, My master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eats and drinks with drunkards, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he does not know. He will flog him, or cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like several other parables that we have encountered in Matthew in the latter part of the story, this parable reflects the brutal reality of the ancient Mediterranean world, in which slavery was common and punishment was harsh. Its actual plot describes a situation that is completely the opposite of what Jesus has been teaching about the new society. Although Jesus has taught his followers that in the new society, everyone should divest themselves of honor, assuming the status of slaves, he does not advocate actual slavery with human masters. His teaching in the last chapter was that the new society will be extremely egalitarian with no earthly masters or fathers. The plot of this parable, as in the previous parables, seems to be deliberately drawing attention to the contrast between the old society and the new one. I even wonder if we aren't supposed to be hearing sarcasm in the opening lines of the parable. Who then is the faithful and wise slave whom his master has put in charge of his household to give the other slaves their allowance of food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master will find at work when he arrives. That could be sarcastic. The purpose of the parable is to continue the theme of staying awake and being vigilant because you don't know when the Son of Man will come, when the thief will break into the house, when disaster will strike. A slave who was the overseer of an estate was, 
relative to common people, a high-status person. And in brutal systems, high-status people often let their guard down, get greedy and start to act as if they can do anything, hurt whom they want when they want, and party when they want, perhaps because the system sends them that message, or perhaps because that's what people do to numb themselves to the brutality of the system. But in the brutal system of the old society, even a high-status person is not really safe and needs to maintain vigilance. So that is the cunning of this parable. It both exposes the old society for what it really is like, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, and at the same time makes the point that we need to stay vigilant, stay awake. Let's continue with chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout. Look, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went out, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later the other bridesmaids came along, also saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Here again we have another parable which reflects the cold reality of the patriarchal nature of the ancient Mediterranean world. The groom takes so long to come that the bridesmaids fall asleep and burn through the oil. There is an environment and atmosphere of scarcity which prevents the women from sharing oil. The ones that did not bring extra run to get more oil, and upon their return, the bridegroom shuts them out of the house, saying, I don't know you. The young women pay the price of the groom's tardiness. This whole scene is probably true to life for the world that the original audience knows. But we also get the images of a marriage ceremony and a bridegroom. Marriage ceremonies and bridegrooms were images of liberation drawn from the prophets. Additionally, the images of light and oil and descriptions of the bridesmaids as wise and foolish evoke a wisdom theme that reflects the role of Jesus as a peasant rabbi teaching subversive wisdom that forms the basis of the new society. So we get signals of liberation through these wisdom and prophetic images embedded in a parable that reflects a brutal patriarchal reality. And then the message is to stay awake. And I even wonder if there isn't supposed to be some humor or irony in the fact that all of the bridesmaids fell asleep, but some got in and some didn't. And really, it was the groom's tardiness that caused the whole problem. But the message is to stay awake. Stay awake or keep awake. Stay awake or keep awake is one word in Greek, and a form of it occurs three times in this section. 
The word also occurs three times in the next chapter, in the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus is arrested and taken to be tried and crucified. So the occurrence of that word three times here foreshadows the occurrence three times there. On the surface, this section seems to be about the future coming of the Son of Man. But again, the author of Matthew has literarily tied it to the crucifixion through the thrice occurrence of the Greek word meaning stay awake. What's really interesting is that the basic structure of this section is taken from the Gospel of Mark, but Matthew expands it, adding considerable content. The parts about Noah and the flood, one person being taken and the other left, the thief in the night, and the parable of the bridesmaids are all additions in Matthew. Even the one parable that comes from Mark, the one about the slave in charge of his master's estate, has been expanded. But not only does Matthew maintain the theme of staying awake, not only does Matthew have Jesus saying that Greek word three times in this section, foreshadowing the three times that he will say it in the Garden of Gethsemane, but Matthew even changes the form of the word the second time it occurs in this section to match the sense in which it is said the second time in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in both Matthew and Mark, Jesus says first, stay awake, then you could not stay awake, then stay awake. In Mark, the earlier section has Jesus saying, stay awake three times. Matthew has Jesus say in the earlier section, stay awake, then remarks on someone who did not stay awake, then says, stay awake, so that the sense of each statement matches the sense of each statement in Gethsemane more perfectly. This section that we have just looked at continues the larger section that is often called the Little Apocalypse, or more traditionally, the Olivet Discourse, reflecting the setting on the Mount of Olives. Throughout, the author of Matthew speaks of the coming of the Son of Man as a future event, but literarily ties it to the cross. Jesus throughout this section admonishes his followers to stay woke, to stay awake, and he will repeat that three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. The parables that Jesus uses to get across his message, like the other parables we have seen in the latter part of Matthew, tell stories true to the brutal real-life reality that the original audience would be familiar with, while signaling liberation through imagery and communicating the message of staying awake. The next parable, also part of this same discourse, is one of my favorites. The story will again reflect brutal, real-world reality, but the parable will constitute the culmination of this string of such parables and will turn the real world upside down. That will be in the next episode. For now, my name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode was provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please spread the word about this podcast and give us glowing reviews and ratings that will draw people to the podcast. You can leave comments and questions at subversivewisdom at gmail.com. This has been Episode 60 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.